Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. What's up, everybody? Will here. And I just wanted to put a quick foreword in for this podcast because we did have a few little technical difficulties while we were recording it. Uh, Max currently living up the coast and so his internet can be a little bit dodgy. So he drops in and out a couple of times and in one instance drops out entirely from the meeting. Um, but luckily that happened at a pretty opportune moment in the podcast. Um, so I just wanted to flag that with you before you started listening because although it does happen, we do have some very long stretches where it doesn't at all. And in amongst that, Mac, Mac gives some absolute gems to us that are really going to help you in practice. So I apologize for, for that little dip in quality that we get here and there in the podcast because this one's a really, really good episode. So I'm hoping you enjoy it. Thank you. Kablamo. Kablammy. Fuck, you absolutely jumped the gun. Um, it is recording, Alex. So that's just going to have to be your introduction. You want to take, take it, it away? So this is episode 103. We're joined by Mac Baker today. Mac, do you want to say hello? Hello. He's been asking us for about two years if he could come on the podcast and finally we've run out of ideas, so we've got him on. This is the only reason why I had Will on my podcast, just so I could circle jerk my way onto the Weekly Weights podcast. If the that was about 18 months ago, yeah? Yeah, you got to like, you got to sort of let him simmer a little bit, you know? It's like, it's in my very limited experience of trying to date girls, I wait until they express any interest in me and then I just don't talk to them for like six to eight months and then just out of the blue say, how about dinner? And normally by that stage, they're, they're real keen on me. That's, that's how it usually works. What do you reckon, Alex? They just say no phone, new phone, who it is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, res- I actually respond with me too, new phone, who this? If anyone does that to me, because like I don't want to be disrespected like that and have them think they can get away with it. Has that been successful, Will? Never, <laughs> but, but it's a numbers game, Alex. That's, that's <laughs> so um, I want to actually give a much better introduction to Mac because I'm personally thrilled to have him on the podcast. So Mac has been a colleague of both Alex and myself and he actually worked with me as a client for a while as well. Um, he's a sports nutritionist uh, and he's going to be pursuing his master's of nutrition and dietetics. So I'm thrilled to have him on. Um, you can find him on Instagram at Mackenzie Baker with an underscore after it. And he puts out some really, really good content um, about using nutrition to modify your body composition and more recently performance. And one of the reasons I particularly like the way he phrases things is because he always tries to give some context around his food choice recommendations. And although Mac does talk in terms of nutrients here and there, he really always tries to bring everything back to what are we actually putting on our plates because at the end of the day, we don't really eat carbs, fats, and proteins. We eat food. And so really like Mac's way of talking. We're thrilled to have him on. Mac, is there anything that we didn't touch on in our introduction of you that you think would be important just to let the people know who you are? Uh, um, yeah, probably just the fact that I um, work for Fortitude Nutrition Coaching, which is, which is an online nutrition coaching company. Um, and I have my own podcast, which is a superior podcast to Weekly Weights, if I say so myself. And also, thank you for the kind introduction. It's very kind of you. No, well, thank you. I think, actually, before we get into the, the real substance of this discussion, it's probably important to also explain to people how you got the moniker One Rep Mac. 
So, yeah. So, <laughs> Who wants to explain that? Go. I will. Um, so Mac did work with me as a client for a while. And he, I got to say, what's that? Nothing. <laughs> he, said, he said, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately for everybody involved. Um, <laughs> Mac brings unparalleled intensity to his training in the gym. Um, and when he was really, really pursuing getting his deadlift numbers up with a degree of success, uh, he just picked up the moniker one rep Mac in the gym and one rep Mac, I would say became your persona when you were training, wasn't it? It was, it was like a catch cry for just for unrelenting pursuit of greatness in the gym. So that's yeah. It was sort of my little, it was sort of my little G up being like, just trust the process. You know, you're going to have to, you want that 200 kilo one rep Mac, just trust the process. Do what Will says and you'll get it. And yeah, that was the idea behind one rep map. Just just the, the anticipation and the excitement of going for that one rep map, which never happened. <laughs> it's good though. It's like you've got to have a bit of an alter ego that you assume when you train. Um, you know, it's the Jekyll and Hyde thing. So Mac, the the reason we've got you on is to talk is to talk about um, nutrition strategies for powerlifters. So so maybe speaking about some ways that we can improve our diets, but do so in a way that is sustainable and healthy. Um, Alex, do you maybe want to take it away with the main questions? Because you put in a yeah, lot so, of So I'll, um, I'll just intro it by giving a little bit of context to powerlifting. And a lot of powerlifters kind of look at nutrition as, like Will alluded to before, macros and calories. Whereas one of the great things that you do, Mac, as Will mentioned, is you talk about you know, which foods we should select over other foods and how we can go about manipulating the food on our plate to, you know, meet our numbers in at the end of the day. So I wanted to kind of talk about tracking macros, go into some positives and some negatives. So we'll start with what are the positives of um, tracking macros for powerlifters or for any athlete? Okay, so I don't think at this point in time we could probably isolate the positives to powerlifting exclusives, exclusively. Uh, but the main positives are that it is the most efficient way to control variables that lead to the desired outcome, whether it be, you know, uh, often weight change in some particular way. It's not often that you would use macro tracking for a weight neutral goal. Um, it's also a really fantastic tool for education, like to learn about what's in what foods, in what amount and be able to develop a little bit of an eating routine and a better understanding of what your plate equals in terms of the numbers. Um, and yeah, it is the most reliable and efficient way to progress or change your weight, change your body composition in terms of nutrition, because you're basically overriding any thoughts and feelings that might misguide you. Um, and basically end up in you consuming a diet or particular foods or a quantity of calories that isn't conducive to your goal. Can I interrupt you for one sec? Because um, you said something I thought was really interesting, and that was that we wouldn't often start tracking macros for a weight-neutral goal, um, if I heard you correctly. And mm -hmm. I think, like, I actually agree in practice, um, but I think a lot of people, in my experience, do start tracking their macros without the intention of making big body composition changes and they do it just to exert control over their diet. Um, we are going to explore some potential drawbacks of macro tracking, but why in that context might that not be the most helpful way to begin? Look, it certainly has its place. And if someone 
one is potentially undereating chronically or um, just wanting to make sure that they are actually eating sufficient calories and be able to justify that through um, objective data, then tracking macros for a weight neutral goal is an okay idea. But I think the potential drawbacks outweigh the potential benefits um, in this sort of context. Uh, one of the potential drawbacks, and would you be happy to go into them now or do you want to cover that in a second? No, absolutely. Go into it? Get in there. Yeah. Okay. So a few of the, I think if you can get away without using macro tracking, then I think you should probably try and steer away from it. I'm not saying macro tracking is a bad idea, but the main issue I have with it is people becoming reliant on it, people losing the skill of simply being able to eat based off um, just informed thinking, um, but also your internal hunger cues. Okay, so it's very easy to fall in a, in a state of reliance where you literally lose that skill and that can have some negative implications on your mental health, um, especially if you go to an event or social uh, feel like you're obliged to track when it's not really feasible or a good social idea to do so. And if you don't track, you might feel a level of guilt or, and it also can encourage a little bit of an on-off mentality with nutrition. And this can lead you down a undesirable path. Um, I also think the other drawback with potential drawback with macro tracking is that it's not feasible for everyone to do and it might not actually be required to reach a certain goal. So some people like to go straight to macro tracking. A lot of coaches might suggest, oh, that's, that's what they do, they're macro coaches. This is what we do to reach our goal. But I think that if you can explore non-tracking methods, then I think it's worth at least considering that. But at the same time, there are, certain, there are also benefits and uh, perfectly sound rationale behind sort of starting off with macro tracking as it can be an educational tool, as I mentioned before. I think um, when we talk about like weight neutral goals as opposed to goals where we are trying to deliberately change body weight and body composition, like in the case of trying to gain or lose weight, our hunger cues tend to actually work in opposition to what we're trying to do with our diet. Like when you start losing weight, if you're not, if you're all, if you're kind of overweight, like and significantly overweight, this is usually much less of a problem. But particularly as you start getting lean and if you're athletic and training hard and stuff you will find that you get a progressive increase in your hunger signals. So you have, you have bodily signals driving you back towards maintenance calories or a surplus. And likewise, if you're trying to gain weight, often you'll have hunger signals saying you don't really need more food. And so I think having the objective data of tracking calories is really, really useful there. But one of the reasons I liked you saying it's not necessarily helpful or necessary in like a weight neutral goal is one of the reasons that we have those those hunger and satiety cues in our body is to help us regulate body weight depending on how much energy is coming in and out and so if maintenance is the goal then deliberately trying to learn the skill of like responding to some of those interoceptive cues so mm -hmm. some of those bodily signals is really really good and if you put the the idea of like making sure you're hitting numbers that are kind of arbitrary in front of saying well are my bodily signals lining up with with my experience and what i'm seeing on the scales and can i learn can i learn myself better then i think you're actually missing a lesson and potentially giving yourself much more rigid behaviors than are necessary so i really like the way you phrase that mm. i also think one other potential drawback is that people can start to associate healthy eating with 
a, a numbered sort of thing a little bit too heavily. Now, obviously, the quantity of quantities of calories we're consuming is a massive factor in terms of you know how quote unquote healthy our diet is. But sometimes it can be putting the cart before the horse if you if you lose focus on what good nutritious food is, and you actually might not realize, or a lot of people might not realize, that you can manipulate your calories in a desirable way through appropriate food selection. Um, I don't, I don't think that, go. One thing that you mentioned, Mac, that is that macro tracking isn't feasible for everyone. Um, do you want to go into a little bit more depth about that? Like which kind of people wouldn't suit it? So obviously there are a billion different types of personalities out there. Some people love numbers, data, spreadsheets. They love to be precise. Um, they love to be accurate, but there are people out there who just look at a spreadsheet. They consider numbers and they just don't know what the F is going on. So for those sort of people, um, focusing more on a habits or an, an educational side of nutrition can guide your nutrition in the desired direction. But also for people who tend to become overly obsessed or neurotic or fixated on numbers that can be a little bit all or nothing, then it might not be feasible to progress in a desired manner using macro tracking. But generally speaking, when, it, when I say it's not feasible, it's just because for a lot of folks out there, they might not be fantastic at using technology. They might not like numbers and giving them numbers to follow, um, occupying a larger quantity of their mental resources is just something that's not feasible. Like, you know, if you've got a client who, you know, owns his own business, has three kids stressed out of their brain, it's not feasible for that person who's already super duper busy and stressed to go and then add another thing on top of that through using my fitness power, for example. Yeah. Particularly in that context where they would, you know, potentially have meals prepared for them by someone else just adds a bunch of variables to the, to the mix. Yeah. Or if they really enjoy uh, eating out, potentially dining out, or if um, their, their job or their occupation is involved around calorific social occasions, um, if they work in hospitality, all those sort of things. So there are plenty of scenarios where macro tracking is just not really on the table. Yeah, it's kind of like you're asking them to exert control in situations that they can't reasonably control. Like if you if you have an arbitrary macronutrient breakdown to try and hit, and it's like, well, I don't even know what went into this food. <laughs> like, you know, I like I don't have choice in the food that's served me, let alone how it's made. So how am I going to how am I going to hit really strict numbers? There's actually something else you said about like about people who already have a lot on their plate and asking them to, to track calories. And it's, it's something I found um, really interesting. I'll, I'll try and find the study, but there was some research finding that one of the best predictors of, of successful weight loss diet was also its perceived simplicity. And so particularly when people do have a lot on their plate mentally, I think asking them to, to educate themselves on the nutritional content of food, start tracking it and be mindful and stuff can be a lot to ask. Whereas if you give people some general healthy eating guidelines, and like, you know, something that we used when we were in nutrition and dietetics a lot was literally just a plate model where you just draw lines across the plate and say like have, you know, this quarter carbohydrate e-foods. Do you know what they are? And they say bread and rice. Then you say this half can be veggies and this quarter can be meat or something. You do something as simple as that and people are like, oh, okay, great. That's cool. I'll start with that. And often just because it's simple, it works, you know? Yeah, another thing I really enjoy is um, or really like the idea of think it's a great idea is the idea of like a daily habit checklist or daily checkboxes 
where you're basically just ensuring that you meet a bunch of daily requirements that involve nutrition and how your diet ends up looking within that sort of doesn't really matter. And if you adhere to these basic daily checkboxes, you end up sort of doing what's required almost by default. So an example of that would be as per the Australian Dietary Guides, eating your two fruit and your five veggies. So roughly that equates to 300 grams of fruit and 400 grams of veggies at least. So this could be a daily habit checklist, uh, an example of two daily habit checklists that will help control your calories almost as a result of adhering to these. So, you know, did I eat at least uh, two serves of fruit today? Did I eat at least five servings of vegetables today? Of course, the individual who's following this has to know what that actually looks like and what that means. But the general idea is that through some basic daily, did my diet achieve X or Y, you end up sort of ticking the boxes and uh, it can lead to your desired outcome with a lot of flexibility and a lot of simplicity. Yeah, I think that's great. And that's also a really good segue because the next question we have is like, what are some nutritional strategies that don't require us necessarily to track macros as strictly? So you spoke already about like having some basic nutritional checklists. What are some other ways that we can maybe start manipulating energy intake and macros indirectly? It'd be good to have examples both for losing weight and for trying to gain it. Okay, so we can basically look at three main strategies or three main categories of strategies for this. The first one is through food selection. The second one is through your approach to eating or meal time. And your third one is an informed understanding of good nutrition. So that largely is underpinned by education. In terms of food selection, as you mentioned, it does depend on what the goal is. Okay, so for example, I'd say most people out there have weight loss on their mind. Okay, so essentially through food selection, we're trying to manipulate things to end up in a lower calorie consumption. And there's a multitude of ways we can do this. The main one is going to be focusing on low calorie per bite foods. So another way you might say that would be like low energy density. Um, yeah, basically what we're saying is this food has a low calorie content per unit volume, mass or serving. Okay, so the idea is that you fill yourself up and you feel full from it because you get to eat a large volume of food. And then through that process, you've only ended up yielding a small amount of calories. Um, other ways include like that. Sorry. What are some lower energy density foods? So typically when we look at those foods, we're talk talking fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and lower fat sort of proteins, for example. So that brings me to the other things we can focus on with food selection to reduce calorie intake. We've also got fiber intake. Uh, we've also got the fat content because fat is the most, the highest calorie per bite of the carbs, fats, and proteins. Um, another thing that I think a lot of people miss in this is the palatability. So another way of another term for palatability would just be the taste or the deliciousness, the appeal. So something that's very palatable would be easy to consume in excess. And then something that's of moderate or low palatability would be something that you're less likely to overconsume. So these are some factors through food selection that we can use to manipulate our calorie intake downwards. Um, I want to stop you there quickly. So let's sort of get in the trenches and say, you know, I will turn up to you and say, Mac, I want to lose weight. You do a quick dietary assessment and you find out that my diet is not appallingly bad, but, but there's, you know, some room around the edges to make some nip and tuck. So say for brekkie, I'm, you know, buttering my toast and having a whole bunch of like full cream milk, um, low fiber, 
like low fiber, no veggies at brekkie. Lunch, I'm usually going and getting takeaway. And dinner, the majority of the time, my wife cooks for me. Um, but there's a selection of there's a selection of carbs, fats, and proteins at most meals. And like I have a few drinks on the weekend. So like a pretty typical, just like office workery type of diet. Um, what would then be a couple of bits of like practical advice where you could reduce my calorie intake just based on those those habits? Like where would you start? Well, firstly, I'd say that the the changes to the diet need to be feasible. They need to be realistic. You can't just expect someone to go from that to full-blown macro tracking, following a meal plan, doing something that's completely different, inconvenient, and just not even realistic. Um, I would actually also, in the case of not overwhelming someone, I would start just with one meal and focus on nailing that for a period of 7 to 14 days before moving on to the next one. So identifying one to two, say, breakfast, we could begin with breakfast, one to two appropriate breakfast that sort of lean or steer towards the uh, food factors that I mentioned before, um, calorie density, fiber, palatability. Um, and basically what that means is we're going to increase the whole grain fiber. We're going to look to reduce the fat. We're going to look to have a portion of some protein in there um, and increase the plants. And when I say plants, I'm just talking fruits and veggies. So it's a really good idea to build your meals in a different way to what you might be used to. So typically in society, people start with the carbs. Okay, I'm going to have pasta. I'm going to have breakfast cereal. So we start with the carbs. Now we want to change this approach a little bit. We want to actually change to, okay, we're going to start with protein plants. So we're going to start with a lean, a leanish protein source. So a food that is mostly comprised of protein. And we're going to add a fruit and or vegetable to that. And then we sort of accessorize from there. So we start with our foundation. Is accessorized with the whole grain fibers and the quote unquote whole food fats. I say foods that are higher in saturated fats, such as eggs um, and some for fat dairy. And then basically, we would garnish with those sort of indulgence foods thereafter. So, we're basically taking a different approach to building meals. Um, and yeah, I would use that approach working with someone to build two to three go-to feasible meals that they can maybe cycle through. Uh, maybe often I'd start with breakfast just because it's you know the start of the day and it can set the day up for different habits. Um, and that's another thing. If you can do something that encourages more health-seeking behaviours, even if it might not be logically sound or effective, then it might be worthwhile doing. You know, And this can be anything from honestly like lemon water in the morning stupid as it is and, how, and and how ineffective it is, if it encourages healthy habits, then it's not necessarily something that you would straight up, you know, um, delete from someone's diet. Sure. So I think that was a really good, that was a really good way of covering like weight loss by just manipulating food choice. Makes perfect sense. I think it'll help a lot of coaches. But you also spoke about um, changes to like meal structure and timing. I think that's really interesting because, again, a lot of coaches would be under the conception that, like, meal timing just doesn't matter at all. Like, I think the pendulum swung from, like, a decade ago. It was, like, better eat six meals a day to keep the metabolism stoked. And then then it swung all the way to meal timing literally doesn't matter at all. Like, full-on YOLO mode, eat whatever, Mm -hmm. so long as your macros are the same across the day. What's the middle ground? Because you're saying it is a potential avenue for intervention. Yeah, so if muscle retention or growing, you know, the maximum amount of muscle isn't at the forefront of someone's mind, 
it doesn't really matter a great deal if you eat, you know, what, two times a day versus six times a day. But, um, you know, that's if you're controlling all variables and adherence differences sort of gets thrown out the picture. Generally speaking, it seems that I would believe from my experience working with people and myself through myself that consuming a main meal every four to six hours or a snack of some description kind of gives you that sweet spot of where you're obtaining the maximum amount of fullness that a meal can bring you and you're um, utilizing that for the extent of its positive effect on fullness before you hit it with another, you hit yourself with another um, meal, if that makes sense. So basically this I find to be the sweet zone where people are gaining the maximum amount of fullness from how many meals they're eating and how often they're eating, if that makes sense. Um, another thing that I know you're big on, Will, or you've discussed with me before, and I, you know, you did, I will totally admit you did give me some new ideas and open some new insights and um, bring some new thoughts to my, the forefront of my mind, is that uh, often excessive eating is underpinned by excessive restriction in a prior period whether this be looking at the day, looking at just the morning or looking at the whole week. So if you, for example, are someone who skips breakfast, that's perfectly fine, provided you don't compensate those calories you are reduced from your diet later in, at later hours, it's not going to make a difference. And it's a perfectly fine way to help reduce your calorie intake. But here's the deal. If you have a wholesome filling breakfast, you're going to be satisfied for several hours thereafter. And then you're probably not going to have those impulses throughout the morning that leads you to you know, grazing and potentially some mindless snacking. Now, the problem with mindless snacking and grazing is that you do end up going for the convenient things. And when we're talking convenient things, unless it's fruit, it's probably going to be something that is low fiber, calorie dense, very palatable. So the likelihood of excessive calorie consumption due to all of those things is quite large. And it's pretty easy to end up consuming quite a lot of calories through that behavior. So in those instances, having wholesome, filling, reasonably well-planned high-fiber meals with some protein in them as well is a really good way in terms of food distribution and timing to get a lot of quote-unquote fullness. I don't want to say satiety because probably not everyone knows what that means. Uh, quote-unquote, a lot of fullness out of your nutrition. Yeah, I think... Just to be clear, the, there is a difference between, and you actually made this point, there's a difference between restriction and not eating because you're not hungry. Like if you're somebody who is who is not a breakfast eater habitually because you wake up in the morning and you don't have much of an appetite, or you are, you are for the purposes of weight loss doing intermittent fasting and you find that your hunger is lower in the morning, so you're happy to forgo some food there and push it back to lunch, that can be valid. But it's when you it's when you really really strictly arbitrarily restrict yourself a lot that you tend to see a lot more of that um that sort of rebound behavior. So if you wake up in the morning and you are hungry, but you eat breakfast like a sparrow um, because you're trying to save calories for later in the day, that's when you start getting that cycle of restriction and overeating more. But if it if you try and sort of shape the periods where you eat less to when it's most comfortable for you to eat less. And then, you know, and restrict in a reasonable way or a way that's goal oriented, then you do a little bit better. So it's the difference between like excessive and just planned restriction. Matt. Yeah, 
I'll absolutely echo what you're saying there. Whereas, you know, not eating in the morning is absolutely a viable strategy, but I think a lot of people think that it's a good idea for them and maybe don't realize that their mind is really on food or they, they actually make it to lunch. They're so hungry. They're so ravenous. They might be a little bit irritable and the likelihood of them making rash, unplanned, thoughtless decisions around food is quite high. Um, you know, other examples of when this sort of situation might occur might be if someone's got a big dinner planned and they decide to fast for the whole day so they can have more room. Now, that's a fine strategy, but it might actually be better to have your regular meals and maybe reduce a small amount of calories through carbs and fats to create that extra room. But if you're having still the base of your protein and plants, you're less likely to be super duper ravenous come time to have, you know, that pizza dinner that was planned a week ago. Um, and you might actually end up keeping your, your consumption within a logical bound or boundaries. And this can also occur on a weekly basis. You know, people might restrict their calories Monday to Thursday really aggressively. And then, you know, they're planning, quote, unquote, a cheat meal or some social meal or some indulgence come the weekend. And then, you know, they might have been, they might have experienced a large buildup of anticipation and excitement for this planned meal. And then it's very hard to keep uh, things within um, reasonable boundaries. You know, it's sort of like that idea of you, you, give, you give someone an inch and they take a mile. So for this reason, I think consistency is something I'm a big fan of. And, you know, obviously you, there are situations where this is, these are fine strategies, but I would approach them with caution and I'm not very trigger happy with them in terms of being a nutritionist. Yeah. There's, when we talk about meal frequency, like I'm going to change tack a little bit. I agree entirely with what you said. When we talk about meal frequency, I think it's actually, for a lot of coaches, it's easy to think of as like analogous to training frequency in that, like the evidence is that training frequency in and of itself is not that important, right? Like if we're talking about muscle growth, particularly provided that you get the same volume of work done, there doesn't seem to be a big difference whether you do it one, two, three, four or five times or whatever across a week. But at some point it becomes more practical to get your volume done in two sessions and occasionally it becomes three. Um, and if you end up way at the extreme, either doing really, really high frequency or really, really low frequency, you run into some practical problems. You know, it's hard to get all the work done in one session. And if you do six sessions a week, it's hard to actually get much productive work done in those sessions because you're only doing one or two sets and it's a pain in the ass to warm up and all your workouts just become a shit fight. And meal frequency can be kind of the same. I think like, if you try and restrict all of your eating to one meal in a day, you're going to create some logistical problems. It's going to be hard to get all your nutrition in. You'll feel bad. There's likely to be some psychological issues with restricting 23 hours a day to eat once. So that seems like a bad idea. And likewise, telling people to arbitrarily eat really tiny meals all the time just becomes impractical. It's annoying for almost everyone's schedule. It's hard work. It takes more planning than it ought to. So that's no good. But somewhere in the middle ground, you do seem to have quite a lot of leeway to operate. And so what I think, um, what I think when, when I think about like manipulating meal frequency and timing for people to help them with weight loss is the first place I look is at consistency. It's like, are they eating roughly evenly spaced meals and roughly similar times day by day, or is everything a shit show? And that's equivalent to like, are you following a training program at all? Or are you literally just walking into the gym and training something every week? And if you're walking into the gym and training something every week, then we need a program first before we worry about optimizing it. So mm -hmm. I start there with frequency. And then from there, we can start actually gathering some information. If we're like, okay, well, we're having breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
they're roughly even sized meals, but you're always hungry at night and you're never hungry in the morning, then we can start making some nip and tuck. We might reduce meal frequency to just an intermittent fasting schedule, or we might cut back on some brekkie and shove that towards dinner. But you can't make that nip and tuck until it's like, uh, you can't make that nip and tuck until you've actually observed something to base it off of, right? So, totally agree. Yeah, you go. Yeah, you actually nailed that, Berkman. Like uh, a middle road approach in a lot of things in life seems to serve us well. And there's a lot of um, similarities between good training uh, and nutrition and what might be, you know, in the research or on paper or technically true might not um, be the case practically speaking. So as you mentioned before, like a you know, middle ground approach to training frequency seems to do really well and personal preference might have a um, point in deciding what might be what might be an ideal training frequency for someone out there. I think the same thing can absolutely apply to nutrition, but generally speaking, if you're within that sort of three to six feedings, give or take, over a day, you're probably golden and the difference is going to be small, if any. Matt, um, we had we had some questions about healthy eating and um, we had some questions about healthy eating and um, and manipulating body composition and performance. I'm just going to publicly announce what Alex said in the chat. Um, the reason I started giggling in my last big answer was because Chrissy, Alex's fiance, was was dancing through the living room, cuddling a dog. But they're now so excited that they're all barking in the background and he's on mute. So if you don't hear much of Alex, he is here. He does care about you. He just can't speak right now. Um, so healthy eating though, is there a place for, for coaches who are worried about performance now? So not just worried about, about like losing weight. Is there a place for us just focusing on healthy eating principles or does that fall short? I think in certain contexts, just focusing on quote unquote healthy eating does absolutely fall short. And the biggest situation where this is the case is when someone's energy demands are so high. Okay. And that's often going to be the case in endurance athletes. But of course, there are other sporting situations where this is also the case. Now, the reason for that is because it's often not feasible for someone to hit extremely high energy requirements through a healthy eating approach. Okay, we're talking focusing primarily mostly on protein and plants. Now, in these situations, you actually need to go a little bit against what healthy eating might be to actually be healthy um, because one of the most unhealthy things you can probably do as a very active high training load and demand athlete is to chronically under eat. So in order for you to you know, promote good health, you need to make sure you're eating enough food. And sometimes you need to eat a lot of junk food to make that happen. Okay, so I think that is one instance where that falls short. And with that, do you like just say, you know, Sally shows up, she's a triathlete. Do you just go, righto, Sally, like just eat Mars bars? Or do you, or do you like try and start with a baseline of healthy eating and then say, on top of this, we're going to supplement it with Mars bars. Like, how's it work? That's a really good question. So as I mentioned before of the food layering approach, when we were talking about manipulating food selection for calories, we still, we still do start with protein and plants. We then accessorize with our whole grain carbs and our um, whole food fats. 
And then I, 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 um, I mentioned we garnish with indulgences. Now we can use this quote unquote garnish to basically meet our energy demands. So if you're someone who can achieve, um, you know, through protein and plants, some whole grains and some whole food fats, achieves a calorie intake of two and a half thousand calories, but you need to eat 5,000 calories a day, you can then pretty much probably make up the additional 2,500 calories through the garnish. And it sort of becomes a case of, would you like, you know, some, it sort of becomes a case of, would you like some oats with your cocoa pops, if that makes sense. So we still have that base of protein and plants and whole foods and fibrous foods, all that good stuff, nutrient-dense foods, whatever you want to call it. But then basically where once we've achieved sufficient amounts, we recognize that going beyond that not only is going to benefit our health more, but it may be impacting our ability to actually fuel ourselves sufficiently, both for our exercise but also our recovery. Um, and that can have health implications. Some big health implications of uh, insufficient fuel or insufficient calorie intake is going to be uh, injury and illness. Okay, so when we are chronically in an energy-deprived state, we may see decreases in bone mineral density, uh, reproductive function may suffer, and that's why you see a lot of females in endurance sports and or bikini competitions who diet very um, aggressively, losing their periods, losing their menstrual cycles. Um, it may have other implications, such as you're more susceptible to illness and uh, injury even. So all those things are ultimately going to make you a lead to you more likely being unhealthy and it's going to impact your performance as well because if you are ill or injured, not only will you simply not perform your best, but you won't actually be able to train at all or even if you're coming into competition, if you get sick, you might actually not be able to do that competition. Um, I'd love to, I'm really glad you started unpacking that because I find it so interesting. You're talking about like being in an energy deprived state and that potentially causing maladaptation. Um, can you maybe expand on what the difference is between relative energy deficiency and being in an energy deficit? Because they're not exactly the same thing, are they? No, not at all. So I did a post on this lately and because it was an informative post, no one gave a fuck. <laughs> but pretty much. <laughs> um, pretty much. So you can be in, any, in an energy deprived state and still not in a calorie deficit. Okay. So energy availability basically is your exercise energy expenditure minus your intake. Okay. And what's left over is sort of your energy availability. Whereas energy balance is simply just calories in, calories out. As simple as that. Um, so yeah, you want to make sure that firstly you are uh, consuming sufficient energy availability for your health before you consider going into more aggressive or primarily focusing on fat loss, I would say. Because sometimes being chronically in that energy deficient state can lead to some adaptations that can actually make fat loss not only, not only a real uphill battle, but actually be something that is going to harm your health if you don't do something about it prior to commencing fat loss, if that makes sense. So I know there were, um, like I read a, I read a position stand on rel relative energy deficiency in sport. So REDS is the acronym. And there were some, um, there were some guidelines on energy intake per kilogram of body mass, I think. 
that were yeah. meant to be like rough, rough safe levels. Can you off the top of your head remember what they were? Yeah, so I know them off fat free mass. So for the listeners, that's going to be how much you weigh without any body fat. So if you were 0% body fat. So if you're 100 kilos and 10% body fat, that's 90 kilos, right? Um, so it's below 30 calories per kilogram of fat free mass that from memory is considered clinical low energy availability. From memory, sub 45. Uh, calories per kilogram of fat-free mass is subclinical and the theoretical optimal is going to be above 45 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. So if you're going for a fat loss goal, you generally don't want to dip below that 30 uh, kilocalories per um, kilogram of fat-free mass. Um, And if you do and you stay in that period for a chronic period of time, firstly, it might be required to achieve a certain goal. Like if you want to get freaking freaking lean for a bikini comp or whatever, you may have to accept there are going to be some health trade-offs. Um, what I was going to say is it sounds like implicit in your answer is that here and there you'll have to dip into that sort of subclinical energy deficiency state of below 45 um, calories per kilo of fat-free mass. Right? And like yeah. I think if most people did the maths on that, that seems almost certain. But you're saying delaying or trying to totally avoid getting below that 30 calorie per kilo of fat-free mass one is is the go. Yeah, I think it's less of an issue when you consider timeframes. So if you dip into a low energy availability state, but it's really only for a short period of time and you're making sure you're, expen- you're uh, spending extended periods of time at a good energy availability or at weight maintenance or above, then you're probably going to be fine because a lot of these negative effects do take time to manifest. Um, So I think if you, you know, it's like the sort of idea of if we're going on a road trip, we have to take rest stops. Otherwise we're not actually going to be able to complete the road trip. If you have a long-term fat loss goal, you're going to want to take, you know, maintenance phases along the way. Uh, We can't diet forever. Uh, it's definitely not feasible nor a good idea. So provided you're making sure that you get sufficient time where you actually eat at weight maintenance or above and not sort of weight maintenance or I think I'm at weight maintenance, then, you know, I think it's less of a concern. But generally speaking, this is why we don't want to have calorie deficits too aggressive. I mean, if we're going to do that, again, we want it to be for a shorter period of time. Yeah, sure. Um, I am checking whether Alex is safe to talk. My boy. All right. You take it away, dude. It's welcome, Alex, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome, Alex. That was a good discussion. Right, I was enjoying that one. All right. Let's um, move on to the next subheading, which is performance. So basically fueling our bodies to do, basically do what we want them to do. So in a powerlifting context, what are the important things that we need to consider when fueling our bodies for powerlifting performance? So we can break this up. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So we can break this up into two areas. We can think about fueling in terms of an acute uh, sort of approach prior to training or competition. And then we can look at the diet in general. So if we look at the diet in general, firstly, we need to make sure that we have sufficient calories available in our diet. We're just eating enough. 
Now, if you're dieting, you can be in an energy deficit, but you still want to be eating enough that you still have the resources there to feel reasonably good or sufficient level of training or competition, although I wouldn't be dieting close to competition. Just add that one into there. Um, and also, we want to make sure that we've got sufficient protein to support the retention or growth of muscle tissue. Uh, we then also want to make sure we have the intermediaries involved in using the energy we get from food. And in layman's terms, that's basically just our vitamins, minerals, and dietary fibers. Okay. And then we've got other things like, you know, non-food related, more like sleep, stress management, um, that sort of thing. So that's basically what we need to be there in terms of um, on a more habitual sort of sense in terms of a diet that's going to be good for powerlifting. Uh, on a more acute sense, and this is something that I sort of, um, this is going to sound like a bit arrogant, but I sort of created it myself because I was doing this, the postgraduate diploma in sports nutrition, and you're reading through these textbooks and watching all these lectures and reading these papers, and I'm like, this could be simplified so much. I sort of thought to myself, I was like, what are the, the check boxes? So remember I was talking about daily habit checklists, thinking about, you know, is your diet good or whatever based off a checklist of requirements. So I think that we can actually create a checklist out of competition or training nutrition. So the first one is going to be comfort. And I think this is something that a lot of people miss. And this can be extended into gastrointestinal comfort, basically how do you feel. But it also is just generally how do you feel and often taking a trade-off of what's considered optimal to seek comfort is going to bring a more meaningful positive effect to, you know, your training and performance. Um, so the first one's comfort. The second one is fuel availability. Let's just stop there. Can you just give a few examples of um, when you might choose comfort over optimality and like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just off the top of my head, the first example would be, uh, I don't know, choosing a caffeine source that, you that sits well with you and you enjoy it. It makes you feel good. Okay. It might not be the most reliable in terms of dose. Um, it may have the potential to have any, it may come with other ingredients that might not be desirable, but if it's something you enjoy and it's a bit of a ritual for you and it makes you happy and if you're happy, you might do well in your training or your competition, then it's probably worthwhile having in there. Another example might be your pre-exercise um, nutrition. Okay, so you might be having a food such as oats that's got a lot of fiber in it and you wouldn't typically want to eat that so close to commencing an exercise session. But if it's something you enjoy, it's a little bit of like a comfort thing for you, uh, it's something you've always done and you don't really feel any discomfort, then I think it's perfectly fine to say, well, you know, we probably shouldn't have this amount of fiber so close to starting exercise, but you feel fine on it. It's still got carbs in it. Might as well keep it in. Sorry, so the old if it feels chat. good. Sorry. So the old if it feels good, keep doing it is actually a thing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, obviously if someone was like, I feel good not eating any carbs at all, and they compete in a sport that is heavily glycolytic. So when I say glycolytic, relying on glucose uh, as a main fuel source, then you would say, ah, well, maybe can we try this or whatever? Maybe, you know, we it's maybe a trade-off that's a little bit large and we want to try some carbs. But for the most part, you can often take trade-offs that are worthwhile because in the grand scheme of things, optimal fuel, um, optimal sports nutrition 
is not going to be so different to pretty good sports nutrition in terms of the grand scheme of things. Um, so we've covered uh, comfort. The second one is hydration. Okay, so we want to make sure that prior to commencing exercise or competition, we're really well hydrated. This goes beyond just simply drinking water. If we drink water too rapidly, we're probably just going to piss it out. Uh, sometimes if we have insufficient salt or sodium in our diet, electrolytes, we, may, we might not retain a lot of the fluid that we're consuming. Again, we might piss it out. Um, and the next point, which I think I actually mentioned but then stopped for some reason, was fuel availability. So when I say fuel availability, pretty much, generally speaking, in almost always we're talking carbs. Okay, so do we have our storage pools of carbohydrates within our body topped up? And that's going to be in the liver and the muscles. Okay, so that's going to be our main substrate we're going to use for pretty much any hard sport. And the final one, which is less important, but certainly worthwhile having, and we know it works, is caffeine. But this is another one where you said we might take a comfort trade-off. If someone gets really anxious on caffeine or if consuming the theoretical optimal dose for sport leaves someone you know, really jittery and not comfortable and on edge, then you would say, well, we'll take that into account and maybe change things a little bit. So just to recap, caffeine, fuel availability, comfort and hydration. That's, they're the main checkboxes you want to have sorted when you're coming into an exercise session or competition. I reckon that's an awesome summary. And with your permission, I want to call this episode, like I want to say, weekly way to speak, Mac Baker, inventor of nutrition. I mean, I've caught that. All right, well, we'll roll with that. <laughs> we'll roll with that. <laughs> I guess, rolling on from your checklist. So these are the things that we kind of want leading into a session. How important is like our peri-workout nutrition protocol? So again, going back to the broiest of my bro days, like I wanted to make sure that I slammed a protein shake within 30 minutes of the end of my session. And more recently, it's become really important to me to make sure that I consume some carbs in the couple of hours prior to my session and some fluids and my caffeine. Um, do you have any gauge of, of how important that stuff is for adaptation and how much leeway we have in how we structure it? Yeah, I think we have honestly plenty of leeway. leeway. Um, generally, we can break up recommendations into macros or components of food or nutrition, right? Uh, so in terms of protein, pretty much I don't feel like training affects that a whole deal. And people often think like post-workout protein. Really, my approach to protein is just have your protein evenly spaced, evenly dosed um, boluses across your waking hours. And say that's every roughly four to six hours, just pretty much put your training session anywhere in between those gaps. Um, I would not recommend starting exercise right after consuming protein. I would let it settle a little bit. But generally speaking, that's sort of what's going to be optimal with protein, to be honest. Um, Post-workout protein matters a whole lot more if you train without first eating protein in the prior hours. So if you wake up, you know, have a coffee, have a ripe banana and a bagel, and then 45 minutes later you train, there's not really any protein in that. Then post-workout protein sort of matters a whole lot um, because if you do a training session and then don't consume protein in the hours after, then you're going to be in a negative protein balance, which is basically means you're not going to be getting jacked, um, more or less. So in terms of protein, that's really all that you need to think about. Um, in terms of carbohydrates, you just want to have some carbohydrates in the hours prior to exercise. 
Um, you know, how close you have those carbohydrates to when you do your exercise session is going to determine what's an appropriate source. So further away, you can have some fiber in there, but closer, you want to have less fiber. Um, fats is really just a case of, well, I just wouldn't really put them in or before training um, or exercise and put them at other times. And really the same thing applies to vegetables. Um, and that's really all there is to it. Um, but then there's also the idea of, well, why would, you know, why would I not have intra-workout carbs? Why would I not drink Gatorade? So yeah, it probably won't make a massive difference if you're only training for an hour, but if you've got the calories to play with, if it makes you feel good and you like the sweet taste of it, there's absolute heaps of utility in having a Gatorade. So, uh, but if you are calorie deprived, you might want to think about doing like a diet cordial, or you might want to consider doing even like a carbohydrate mouth rinse, which has been shown to be somewhat effective. Uh, but if you're training less than an hour, intra-workout carbs probably aren't needed. Um, a lot of people also obsess with post-workout carbs, you know, spike your insulin. Thanks for that, Charles Bolton. Um, but basically that matters more if you are training in close proximity to a session you just finished. And that is because you need to rapidly replenish anything that you've used up in that session that you just completed. If you're training once a day, you can eat carbs and, you know, for any of your meals later in the day, and you'll probably have your stores topped up just fine. You know, there's no rush. Um, you know, if you were in a CrossFit competition doing multiple wads over a day, um, if you were a tennis player who just did an absolute ridiculous tennis match, and then, you know, even though you're doing a tennis match once a day, because of the, the size of all the, the bout being so great, you know, you have a lot of carbohydrates to replenish, then, yeah, you really want to get on top of post-exercise or post-training carbs. But for most people, it's really not a concern, and I place a lot more emphasis on pre-exercise carbs because that's going to make sure that we have our storage tanks of glucose or carbs fully topped up prior to commencing that session. Yeah, I think I know for the people who train at nighttime, they don't have to consume carbs before bed if they don't want to. Like if they just, you know, want to have a protein shake and go to sleep or just have something proteiny and go to sleep. Yeah, yeah. I don't want the carbs to instantly turn to fat because it's nighttime. <laughs> Great point. Best of both worlds. Yeah. But, you know, if they were training at night and then they planned on getting up the next morning and doing a fasted session or a very early morning session, then having those carbs there at dinner is like really important. And that's because close proximity and a short amount of time to replenish what you used. Speaking of Charles Poliquin, um, RIP, what about supplementation, Matt? Um, because there was a while again where I was under the impression that if I wasn't having uh, a massive array of supplements in and around my training or on every given day, that pretty much everything I did in the gym was a waste. Um, so what are some supplements that, well, one, how important is supplementation just generally? And two, what are some supplements that might actually be worth us spending our time and money on? So before I go into that, there was once a time when I consumed BCAs during my workouts without fail because I watched a video of Ben Pekulski saying if he didn't have his BCAAs, he wouldn't go to the gym. Dang. Yeah. I would have just not gone to the gym. And that's what I did when I didn't have my BCAs. <laughs> that's an expensive gym membership. Yeah, I know. Um, 
So yeah, uh, supplements. So in the grand scheme of things, supplements are the garnish, or as you know, a lot of people like to say the icing on the cake. They're only really worth worrying about if you are absolutely nailing pretty much everything else in your diet. Okay, because it's sort of like an order of importance. So first comes calories, second comes you know eating sufficient protein, and then you know plants and all that sort of shit. And then you've got timing and frequency, and then right at the top of the tree there or the pyramid, you've got supplements. So supplements at most are going to make a couple percent difference. Okay, now of the supplements out there. Only a small amount of them are worthwhile taking. Um, in terms of powerlifting specifically, so you know, firstly, anything that's going to make you a healthier person, you should take. Um, you know, if you have a deficiency and you're taking a certain vitamin or mineral to correct that deficiency, then fine. But I would make sure that that is actually you know a confirmed deficiency rather than I think I might be deficient in something. Um, you know, there, there's utility to taking things like fish oil. If you don't eat any oily fish, uh, if you're vegan, you probably want to supplement with a V12. Um, but apart from that, really, like there's not really many supplements. Speaking about sports performance exclusively, namely powerlifting, honestly, it's caffeine and creatine monohydrate. Uh, caffeine doesn't really need to be obtained through a supplement specifically. Uh, and creatine monohydrate is the version you want to use because that's the one that's the cheapest, it works the best, and it's been really, really well-researched. But even still, even these most well-researched, quote-unquote, evidence-based supplements, all that sort of stuff, they don't always work. Just on average, they've been shown to be effective. So focusing on supplements, even if you are taking the supplements that are really well-researched and um, a lot of positive data has come out from their use, um, you're still sort of putting the cart before the horse if you haven't focused or nailed on you, nailed your nutrition first. Let's just assume that we do have our nutrition and training nailed and we're looking to go and have some caffeine and creatine. What dosages would you recommend? So easy one with creatine, five, three to five grams, creatine monohydrate, really any time of the day, I think. But, you know, some people say post-workout is probably a better idea. I don't really think it matters. Um, in terms of caffeine, so firstly, I would consider something that is comfortable and I would start with minimum effective dose and I would save the higher doses that really get you amped up for Alex is putting the thumbs down to that one. I, just had. Um, I would save the, save the higher doses for important training and or competition and I would certainly be trialing out everything in training. So, you know, if you normally have one white monster, before you train, like Alex does, he has several actually, but then you go to have, um, you know, two white monsters before your first lift at a powerlifting meet. That's something that you haven't tested in training, so you don't really know how you're going to react to it. You may end up getting severe, you know, gastrointestinal stress and want to shit yourself. Um, you may end up feeling extremely anxious and unable to perform well. Um, so that's Ooh. Did Mac just go for you as well? He Well, he hasn't disappeared from the screen yet, but I've got him with a very unflattering facial expression, just frozen. I've got like this one. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've got too. He's, <laughs> he's, got, his, he's got his lips sort of pursed and his tongue just pressing them apart. I feel like this is going to be some of the better content of this episode is just us commentating on Mac's, Mac's posture. Um, 
Alex, what what have you taken from what Matt has said so far? We are gonna pl- we are just gonna plug this gap a little bit. What have you taken from what Max said so far that that sort of stands out as maybe unique or or in addition to what would be common practice in powerlifting coaches? Um, I think it's just that it's not reliant on um, the numbers first, and it's the food first, which equals the numbers. I think is the the most uh, sort of easy way to, to say it. It's it's food first, which equals numbers, not numbers equal food. Yeah, so prioritizing you know enjoying food and sort of healthy eating versus you know restricted targets. Yeah, I think when he spoke about those those three ways of approaching of approaching manipulating calories without necessarily tracking macros. He spoke about like food selection, leveraging that, um, leveraging meal timing and frequency, and then leveraging like mindfulness around eating. I thought that was really intelligent as well, because obviously within that you can still have macronutrient constraints um, and it, it might make sticking to your macros easier, but also just understanding that there's this whole behavioral framework that your nutritional interventions exist within that are also important points to address in your coaching and can make sticking to a meal plan really easy or really hard is super cool as well. So I think that was really well articulated by him. Yeah. It's almost just layers that you can add to tracking macros as well to ensure that you're, you know, ticking the actual boxes for health and nutrition and performance. Do you know they actually named the macros after Mac? I did know that. The inventor of macros. Why don't we pause this? See if we can get Mac back on the line. Oh, oh he might have been reappearing. There he is, our boy, Mac. What's going on, dude? We've just been doing the lightning round of of reviewing this episode. Are you back with us? Yeah, I literally don't know what happened, but it's definitely my internet because I just checked my phone to see if anything would load, and then it just wouldn't load. And honestly, this has been a regular occurrence, being where I live now. Like, is it really on Wi Fi or when you're on your mobile data? No, I'm on Wi Fi uh, because there isn't any mobile data here. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, look, if we weren't so utterly desperate to remain relevant, we'd probably just toss this episode out, Matt. But given that we are desperate for attention, we're going to keep it anyway. Um, we did just spend a couple of minutes talking about because we're going to wrap up the discussion and move on to the four questions after this. We were just we were talking about the things that you said that I think stick out in contrast to how a lot of nutrition coaches operate. And what Alex and I agreed on was like that your your food first approach. So Alex expressed it really well. He said like your macronutrients come from your food. So, you know, the numbers are emergent from your dietary choices. And then I mentioned those frameworks for the interventions where you spoke about food choice, meal timing and education and mindfulness around food. I think having those points those points as being like central to how to how the coaches listening to this go about their discussions and planning of nutrition for their clients would be really really key are there any other like would there be one or two ways that you would just wrap up what you've told us today or some key points that you'd want to leave coaches with um the first thing is don't be afraid to refer out um if you have a client who is injured you send them to a physio if you have a client who needs nutrition, refer out. The reason for that is because you can focus on doing what you're really good at. Um, you can provide a better service. It's going to be more efficient and you don't have to develop new systems that someone has already tried, true and tested. 
Um, so that would be my first thing. The second thing is, you know, and this is something that coaches always know, um, there's many ways to skin a cat. There's multiple ways of doing it. But just remember that if you adhere to the, the checkboxes or, or the requirements, then, um, you know, you will ultimately succeed. Um, so really it's a case of, you know, identify what the common traits of a quote-unquote good diet, any good diet are. So what do all good diets have? And then you've got to identify a few more traits that a diet specific for a goal has in it. So that's basically the diet principle. So a good diet would be sufficient protein, uh, good calories, uh, calorie amount that's um, sufficient for requirements, and you know mostly whole foods, plenty of variety with sufficient plant matter. Um, and then if we were saying, okay, but the goal is fat loss, so then we're going to add to that, okay, well, we need to control calories below a ceiling. Um, if it was muscle gain, oh, okay, we probably need to focus more on timing uh, and we probably, um, you know, we need to make sure that we're in a slight calorie surplus. So it's sort of like a methodical approach and then basically you then consider the individual in front of you, you then consider what's feasible uh, and then go from there. And the other thing I'll say is that I think, you know, I've learned this over time, is there is a massive, massive um, area or need for that human interaction with, with coaching in nutrition, even online. Um, so I think if you're, you know, if you want to get results with your clients in terms of nutrition, you need to almost become sort of friends with them, you know, have those zoom calls, have those chats with them, uh, build that rapport. Um, because ultimately if the clients, you know, are friendly with you, they think you're a good person, they're more likely going to buy into what you have to say or what you guide them through. Unreal, dude. Um, that was awesome advice. Let's take a quick break. Then we're going to hit Mac with the four questions to tell us everything that we need to know about the person. Welcome back to the show. We're here with Mac. We're going to hit him with the four questions to tell us everything we need to know about a person. I don't think you know what they are. Do you know what they are? Well, here's the deal, man. Like you didn't tell me what they were. So I just listened to the last 12 minutes of a recent episode to find out what they were. So I know what they are. You're a resourceful man. Very good. All right. Question one. If you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? So honestly, like I battled this question for hours yesterday and today. I was in the car um, with Jess, my girlfriend, and I was like, who should I, who should I choose? I don't know. So what I will say is that there are people who are doing things that I'd be interested in talking about. Um, Mainly they're sort of someone who has done a really good job of helping a lot of people with their nutrition through some kind of innovation, whether it be a product or a different way of doing things, be it a service or, you know, and, and the first person who came to mind, because honestly I didn't really think of anyone, was the guy who, you know, founded RP, Renaissance Periodization, uh, because they've got a really cool app and, you know, I'm really into design and product design and all that sort of jazz uh, and innovation. So I would like to maybe talk to him about that. There's also another like Instagram influencer who I've been following lately, who I'm quite interested in. I think she's really cool. Um, And the reason for that is because she's basically a digital nomad, which is something that I think is fantastic and sort of the idea of being able to live wherever you want or a holiday destination and still earn money, do something you like is very appealing to me. Um, and the difference between her and other Instagram influencers is because she's cre- is that she's created her own products and then she basically uses marketing and um, intelligent intelligent strategies on social media 
to sort of create this lifestyle where she can live wherever she wants, travel the world, um, you know, live where people go on holidays and still earn a good wage. Um, and that person is, I don't even know how to pronounce her name. She's some random Instagram girl, Sorel Amor. I don't know, but I find her stuff really interesting. She's on Instagram and YouTube and I don't know, I just follow it. I think it's really cool. I would like to pick her brain about that. Um, so really boring answer in terms of that one. Sorry. Well, it was well thought out. So yeah. it might've been boring, Mac. I'm going to be honest with you. It was pretty dumb, but you definitely had a good rationale <laughs> and, and I enjoyed it. I mean, it's, it's less about the people, but more about what I would want to find out. Um, that's kind of my rationale behind that answer. For sure. That's yeah. fair. I like that. All right. Question two. I don't even know if you like sport or not. So I'm a bit uh, up in the air whether this will be any good or not, but who's your favorite athlete of all time? So firstly, I'll say that I'm not like a big in sport like you, Alex, with your basketball and you're like frothing over Michael Jordan's documentary. And- Dude, that is so fucking good. I've been texting <laughs> Alex really about good, it. Man. I don't even like basketball that much. Like, isn't I like basketball, but I don't care. But that documentary is fucking fire dude it is so good look don't get me wrong i absolutely watched it i thoroughly enjoyed it and now i actually know a thing or two about basketball and that bulls logo that i used to see as a kid on clothes and hats i now know why that means something or what it is well that's a good start dude <laughs> that's, that's pretty <laughs> so you're gonna you're gonna so michael jordan's your favorite athlete no <laughs> he's not um i'm interested in athletes who are more than just their sport or if they seek some kind of adventurous lifestyle. So the first people who come to mind is um, Alex Honnold, who's basically that rock climber who free solid, oh, yeah. no ropes, nothing. Uh, uh, I think it was Half Dome or something in Yosemite. Um, the CrossFitter, Brooke Entz, who is never really fantastic at CrossFit, but I think she's like really good at marketing and just basically she's so much more than CrossFit. Um, Eric Helms, even though he's not a professional athlete, well, he's a pro bodybuilder, I think, natural bodybuilder. I'm fascinated by him because he's really smart. He's achieved so much in his life. Uh, he has a PhD and all this sort of stuff. Uh, there is a surfer called Torin Martin who actually lives near Byron Bay, who I think is pretty cool because, you know, a lot of surfers out there who are pro and they earn their money being a professional surfer, they do the competitions and they surf in a particular way and they ride particular equipment. And it's all sort of like he's basically got a completely different style and approach to surfing and he's quite adventurous in what he enjoys. Uh, and that thing, I think that's pretty interesting. So probably they're my favourite athletes. Um, but, yeah, I'm not really like – that didn't really jump out at me either. What I'm getting from this is a sort of theme where like you like seeing people who've done things a bit differently to other people and you sort of want to know the hows and whys. that be fair? Precisely. And I have asked so many people who've done things that are a bit differently, like the practicalities behind it um, for myself, um, because that's something that I value. And the position I'm in now is something that I'm really thrilled to be in. So to fill people in, Max, Mac recently moved up to Byron Bay. um, And it looks like you're living a pretty sick lifestyle, dude. You're spending a lot of time surfing, but you're still getting all your business done online. You've got that digital nomad lifestyle happening. Huh? Yeah. I'm not like someone who wants to travel around in that sense, but just generally living wherever I want 
is, is something that's really appealed to me and being able to do something that I'm thoroughly passionate about as well. Um, I just think like in terms of where you live, I just don't see any point in settling for something that isn't the best place where you want to absolutely live if there were no other circumstances to consider. Um, and that's pretty much why I pursued living here, but it's not going to be forever. Um, and that's sort of a good thing as well, because I think places become stale and there's a lot of, um, attraction in novelty. And I think novelty is worth pursuing. Matt. All right, dude. Question three, what movie or television character do you most resemble? So my answer is absolutely based on what Jess, my girlfriend said, and that is the Grinch because I don't like birthdays. I deleted it from Facebook. I tell people to not message me about it or anything like that. Um, and I don't like Christmas either. I never get involved in it. I hate the idea of like accumulating physical things. Um, and yeah, I just don't like Christmas. So Jess calls me the Christmas Grinch. Um, so probably the Christmas Grinch, but also probably Schmeagel or Gollum, whatever it is from Lord of the Rings. Because uh, as a teenager in school, I had really rounded um, posture, uh, internally rotated shoulders, and I was very skinny with very prominent ribs. And uh, a few of my mates from school used to call me Smeagol. Fuck, that's crippling, hey? That's the, Grinch like... perfect. The, the Grinch is perfect for you because I was just saying to Will that you're a really pessimistic dude, so I'm keen for some rants. That's what I said to him before you came on the show. Wow. Didn't really get into rants. Sorry to disappoint. No, it's all right. We'll open the floor for rants after the four questions. That's fine. Alec, like, <laughs> honestly, I started this podcast primarily interested in, like, exploring information, like, doing some reflective practice, interviewing people I found interesting. And Alex literally just wanted to get on this soapbox and fucking shit on people that piss him off. And so if we can maybe do a little bit of that, like, it only has to be an hour or two when, <laughs> when we finish yeah. the question. I'll... <laughs> I'll be more than happy to facilitate it. I'll just, I'll just host the discussion between you two. Right. All right. Question four, Mac. Your mm. life is being made into a montage and you get to choose the music that it's set to. What do you choose? I would probably choose the same song that is featured in my podcast, podcast intro. And that is, um, I think it's called The Life Organic or something. And basically it's bought by the Bondi hipsters, which are just these... YouTube comedian sort of guys um, who created this YouTube series called the Bondi Hipsters. Um, and the reason for that is because I actually like the tune. I think it's pretty catchy. Um, the second thing is, is because it involves nutrition. Uh, it also involves the ocean and being in Bondi, which is somewhere where I pretty much grew up. Um, and I just think it's funny and I like irony. Yeah. I, I did laugh really hard when I listened to your, your podcast intro music the first time. It's good for people who haven't listened to it. It does really satirize the Bondi lifestyle incredibly well. Uh, but it is, it's exceptionally funny. Mac, I want to, I want to unveil some trivia about you to the people because many people wouldn't know that, uh, that Mac in a past life was both a high fashion model and a DJ. Weren't you, Mac? This is true. I've, I walked, um, Australian Fashion Week probably three years in a row um, and did the David Jones show and a few other bits and bobs. Um, and, yeah, I've definitely done that. And that's an interesting thing as well because it's made me realise why some nutrition fads or trends exist 
And I truly, honestly believe that a lot of the things that are popular in society start with fashion, start in the fashion industry. And I believe that is also true in part with nutrition. Um, Do you think it's just the obsession with beauty? Uh, it's also, yeah, the obsession with beauty is probably the root, but that sort of radiates into people who might be considered to have beauty. They are, they, they're, they're big influences on the world and what's cool and what's, what's right. Um, so yeah, I think that, yeah, I definitely think that fashion it, like if we could get fashion talking about protein and plants as a nutrition industry, we'd probably have, in my opinion, a little bit more success in terms of getting just like, Hey guys, just eat your protein and plants. Uh, that would become a more sort of, um, mainstream thing that people actually believe rather than just thinking they're just nerdy dietitians who are boring and don't understand things properly or I'm on the latest trends. What about the DJing side of things? Because I think you told me you, you had a pretty regular spot at a decent-sized club. Is that right? <laughs> uh, I, I never really was like, you know, playing to big dance floors late at night or anything like that. Um, but I used to play at the Icebergs Bar on a Sunday afternoon. So that's the top floor attached to like the really expensive, expensive, fancy restaurant. And that was a real sort of cool um, spot, I guess. Uh, so that was one thing I did. I've also, I also used to DJ a few times at Frida's in Chippendale, which is like a real sort of trendy hipstery alternative bar. Uh, actually don't know if it still exists, uh, but yeah, um, never really sort of was killing it. I wouldn't really call myself a DJ or at any point in my life. Yeah, mad. Okay. Your final job before before we do let you go is just to let everybody know where they can get in contact with you, how they can follow you on Instagram, what to do about getting coaching with you or with Fortitude generally. Great. So uh, on Instagram, you can follow me at Mackenzie Baker with an underscore at the end. I have a podcast on iTunes and Spotify called the Macabolic Podcast. Uh, if you'd like to hit me up for some coaching, uh, just DM me on Instagram, honestly, and I'll refer you to the right link. Um, but it's through Fortitude Nutrition Coaching, which is a website uh, or Instagram also. Uh, we have a bunch of coaches who specialize in certain areas um, and we take on multiple different types of clients. Uh, we also have the Macabolic Mini Cut starting on June the 15th and Will Berkman has kindly collaborated to um, add some training templates to that program if you want to upgrade. Um, so they're fantastic and I'm looking forward to that. And was that, was that it? I think I've detailed everything. Instagram, podcast, coaching. It's pretty it. Honestly, yeah. we normally cut people off after about 10 seconds, but we figured you're a mate. So we'll let you just keep going for a while. That was, that was very comprehensive. All right. Well, you're a comprehensive man, Will Berkman. Thank you. Do you want to have a quick rant, Matt? Because I feel like I feel like this podcast can't end without maybe you and Alex just going. The sun, the sun's going down, and it's the sun's gone down, and it's all dark in there, and you look real eerie. You look ready. To, you look ready to launch. What are, just, <laughs> like just start on? I don't know something little like ATP science. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got him. <laughs> I mean. The people who promote ATP science, I don't know if 
they have money interests, they want to be part of some kind of fitness circle jerk and it's kind of cool to promote ATP sites or they're just plain maybe uneducated or uninformed. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, one, I'm a person for one who actually bought into that supplement company for once. But it, all I'm just going to say is that it's, it's complete and utter bullshit, pretty much all their products. Um, and that's why they got fined 360 grand by the TGA. So I was say, didn't that happen? Yeah, they actually did get smacked. Yeah, they, they didn't really smacked. stop them though. They put out a couple of dumb products lately. Oh, they've got some new ones, some, some like mm. mushroom thing, I think it was. Mm. Um, yeah. Alex, do you want to respond in kind with maybe a small rant? Just about something that upsets you. Um, I don't have anything off the top of my head, Will. What about... you got to add fuel to the fire. Okay, well, who's the GOAT in basketball? Is it Jordan or LeBron? It's Jordan. Okay, because I was talking to a few people the other day who I would say are informed about basketball, and they said it's not even close as LeBron. How does that matter? I already know what Alex is going to say because I listened to it on the High Performance Podcast. <laughs> well, I think there's a difference between best versus greatest, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's just rehashing an argument we have with Skeppers where you sat on the other side of the fence. So you can't, you can't like claim that with any consistency. If you add up each statistical, not statistical, if you add up each attribute for each player, LeBron comes out on top. But then if you look at competitive balance, Jordan wins out. So if you balance those two things out, Jordan still wins out. But it's pretty close. And LeBron's career isn't finished yet, so he has a chance to overtake him. But well, LeBron will never get to... He'll never get to six titles, will he? But he doesn't need to get to six to be better. Why is that? Because the league is more competitive these days and no one no one has won six in the modern era. But who would you say has had the most positive impact on making basketball a popular mainstream sport? Uh, Jordan. Easily. I don't think that's a fair standard, though. It's because like, once somebody has done that, Nobody else can, you know, like as in you can never be Michael Jordan again because there's already been a Michael Jordan. Well, I think the b- biggest influence was actually the commissioner of the NBA for the 40-year period until about five years ago who like opened all the international borders and sent the dream team to the, to the Olympics, which gained huge amounts of um, popularity overseas and then started looking at NBA in China, NBA in Europe, and then a lot of players from Europe came over and now the NBA is worldwide. Jeez, I tell you, I feel like a lot of the greatest things happened in the 90s. September 5th, 1992, Mac, a day that will go down in history. Yeah, were we all born in the 90s? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we're all born in the 90s. All right, guys. That's been Weekly Ways for the week. Alex's rant was disappointingly just informative. Um, I'm actually always impressed when you talk about basketball, about how much shit you know about that sport. Um, I know more about basketball than anything else, that's for sure. Do you still play? Nah, not at the moment because no, all, all the leagues got cancelled. I was about to start um, before everything closed. I have, a, I have a question that's actually serious, but also just a bit of a jab at your height. If there were height classes in basketball, instead of like just to try and even things out. So say like an under six foot league and an over and like a six foot to six six league and then a six six plus league. If there were height classes, do you reckon you'd actually be really good? Yeah. 
Easily. I was good in non I was good in non high classes. <laughs> Mate, I've watched you play to <laughs> stretch. You could play. You knew which way to fucking throw the ball. Yeah, okay, well. <laughs> All right, guys. That's good. Right, honestly, when are you guys just gonna get in the ring and have a little punch shot? We're still waiting for that. And now it's been announced on weekly weights. I would happily do it. It'd be like Thor versus Eddie, but much less exciting and No, it'd be like Tyson versus either of them. <laughs> Honestly, for charity, like what we need is a national disaster. Because like now that the bushfires are over and you know, we don't have like a big unifying national challenge. Like coronavirus, everybody it's like a big deal, but it's not the same, you know. Like we didn't have like a coronavirus aid concert because we couldn't because of social distancing. But next bushfire season, when we need to raise money for the RFS again, I'll fucking level Alex. I'll people can just pay to watch it. I would absolutely pay to watch that. Okay, perfect, guys. It's been weekly weights. It's Will. I'm going to start learning to box. Can we like open up some betting lines and stuff so I can put my life savings on myself? <laughs> Mate, <laughs> you're going to need that. You're soon to get married, dude. I don't want to have to fucking bankroll. Yeah, you. I'll double it. <laughs> it's fine. I'll double it. Nah, I'll, I'll be I'll be paying like a dollar thirty, so it probably wouldn't be worth it. Nah, you throw some money on me, the underdog, and maybe I've just been TSing about how much of a fucking sook I am for like the past ten years, and I'll just come out swinging. You never know. Oh dear. <laughs> All right. The only advantage you have is reach, Will. Fuck it. Can we just finish this podcast? I'm honestly sick of your face. <laughs> Next time I see it, I'm going to put a fucking fist through it, just like. <laughs> All right, see you later. Guys. <laughs> Talk next week. I actually got.